0: such rich theological truths we've been singing this morning. Because of your life, I live. Wow. My heart is full. Thank you, Kenny and team, for helping us have our hearts and our minds oriented toward Passion Week, toward Holy Week. Um, It's so good for us to wrap our minds around this plan of God and what He has done to purchase our salvation. And... It's just a joy to rejoice together with you and to sing about these truths. Uh, my name is Gerald. I'm one of the elders here. And if today is your first day visiting, welcome. We're so glad you're here. And I see a lot of familiar faces here. And we want you to know that you're welcome, too. It's good for us to be together. Um, we're, not a, we're not a people that has got everything all figured out. But we are a people that is growing by degrees in our ability to understand that because of God's love, we can live. And we need to come together on a Sunday um, weekly basis and have our hearts and our minds reoriented, recalibrated to these truths. Truths about who God is, truths about who we are, and truths about how we can relate well with God and with one another. So that's what we're about as we gather together. So welcome. We're glad you're here. This is Palm Sunday, so welcome to Palm Sunday. It's a kickoff for Holy Week. Hard to believe that Easter is next week already. And this year we have uh, a theme for Holy Week called The Pathway of the Passion. And we're going to begin today to think about what this pathway is like. Um, So, as we do, I've got an image that I'd like us to think about and look at for a little while. And you can see it's just a simple image of a two-track trail winding through some lush green grass. We have limited perspective, right? But from what you can see from this photo, where does this road come from? Where does it go? Jeff is shaking his head. Anybody know where it's headed? What, What do we know about this road? What did you say? <laughs> we don't know a lot, do we? I mean, we can see that it's winding through uh, a pasture. It looks like it may turn or veer to the left down there as it approaches the horizon. Uh, but we don't know a lot about it, do we? We, uh, we can just see that uh, first service somebody said, they get rain there. <laughs> yeah, It doesn't look like Southern California, does it? Actually, it reminds me an awful lot of the upper Midwest in about late June lush, green grass. And um, as a rancher, I envision cattle over there behind that thicket to the left, right? (laughs) Um, They're there because it's the heat of the day. They're seeking shade. They're laying down because they're well-fed. Because look at the richness of the lush grass. Um, But anyway, the point is, is we can look at this road and tell some things about it because we're standing on the ground. We're on ground level, and we have one perspective, and that's the perspective of the photographer. But if we were to rise above that, get in an airplane or something and get 5,000 feet or so above the ground and look down on this road, we'd be able to tell a little more about it, right? We might be able to see that it actually starts as a two-track trail on some more major road. And we might be able to tell that it goes somewhere, maybe it's just to a watering hole and then turns back around and goes back out. We don't know that, but if we were up above the ground, we might be able to have, from that perspective, a little clearer understanding of why this road was built, where it goes from, and where it goes to. So this week, as we are kicking off Passion Week, we're going to look at the pathway of the passion, and we're going to look at it from a couple of perspectives. We're going to look at it from ground level, from the human perspective. What did the pathway of the Passion, as Jesus walked that, what did that appear to look like to humans who were there with Him? And then, by God's grace, through the use of the Word, we'll be able to stand up above that from maybe 5,000 feet and look down on that pathway, have a different perspective, a divine perspective, and seek to discern what that pathway of the Passion looked like. Where was it leading from? Where was it leading to? And why was it engineered in that way? So that's our task today, is we're going to take a flyover look at all of Holy Week, the whole thing from from Palm Sunday on through the pathway of the Passion, down through Good Friday events where Jesus is betrayed and arrested, and a mock trial, and leading up to His crucifixion, and then on through Easter Sunday morning, the celebration of His resurrection. We're going to take an overview of all of that. We'll call that the pathway of the Passion, and we want to look at it from a human perspective, And from a divine perspective. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, we look to you now, the author, perfecter of our faith. We thank you for your word, for how you have revealed yourself to us in your word. And how you have preserved this word for us through the centuries and millennia. And we just thank and praise you now that we have the opportunity to gather and to to read it, to study it, and to glean things about this pathway. Lord, we recognize that we must depend on the Holy Spirit and His ministry to grow in our understanding of these things. So would you give us ears to hear, and would you give us that measure of faith necessary to incorporate these things that we hear and learn into our lives today? So Father, we submit ourselves under, you, under your authoritative word, and we pray that you would Be pleased to dwell among us and to accomplish your plans and purposes in us and through us today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the pathway of the passion from a human perspective, let's look at John chapter 12. John chapter 12 is the story of the triumphal entry. And I'd like us to back up and get the greater context. So in John chapter 11, we see that Jesus has just shown up four days too late for Lazarus' death. Lazarus had been dead four days. Jesus shows up, calls him forth, raises him from the dead. And many, many people were there to see him. And Jesus was gathering this crowd of folks who would follow him everywhere. And it was obvious that... That Jesus was not like any other man. He was doing things that only God could do. God was empowering him to do these remarkable, remarkable miracles. And some of the Jews that were there actually believed in him, but others didn't. I'm going to pick it up in 1145. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation so they clearly saw that Jesus was doing things and saying things that were unique and that he was by doing those things and teaching those truths he was gaining a following and the chief priests and the Pharisees perceived that if they let him go on with this everybody would follow him including the romans and then there would be no freedom for them to get out from under the domination of the romans they were fearing their roman enemies And the chief priests take things into their own hands, uh, 1157. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given given orders that if anyone knew where he was, where Jesus was, they should let him know so that they might arrest him. So they make plans to arrest Jesus in response to this in order uh, to silence this, in order to protect themselves from the Romans and from uh, power being taken from them and given somewhere else. They even go so far as to make plans to put Lazarus to death as well. So they want to undo this Jesus, make plans to arrest him, and this man that Jesus has raised from the dead, Lazarus, they want to kill him again to get rid of the evidence that he is a miracle working man. Okay. So this is the context when we read about the triumphal entry. John 12, verse 12. So from a human perspective, when Jesus begins this pathway of the passion, it is, it's, a, it's a pathway of rejoicing for them as they are receiving their promised king. And this started way back in 2 Samuel where we read about David conquering the Jebusites and taking up residence in the city of Jerusalem and making that his home. It, was, it became known as the city of David. It was in that city that, that Solomon built his temple, and that was the place where the Ark of the Covenant came, and God related with His people there in a special and a unique way, right there in Jerusalem. And it was there in Jerusalem that the Lord, in response to David desiring to build God a house for this Ark to dwell in, the Lord, through the prophet Nathan, addressed David and said, Will you build me a house? The whole time since I've delivered you from Egypt, I have not dwelt in a house, I've dwelt in a tent. But I will build you a house. And when you have died and gone to your fathers, one from your seed will be raised up. And I will establish his throne, he will sit on your throne, and his kingdom will be established forever. So God made a promise to David... That there would be someone coming from his line who would eventually sit on the throne of David and bring about this peace and this security that that the nation was looking for. And the other prophets talked about it as well. In Jeremiah chapter 23, the prophet Jeremiah addresses the people and he tells them this about this promised coming seed of David. Twenty three five, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king, and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called The Lord is our righteousness. So God made a promise to David that the seed of David, the one he would be coming, and he would sit on the throne of David, the prophets continued to speak on behalf of God to the people and assure them that this one was coming. And one of the names by which he would be known is the branch. And one of the characteristics by which he would be known is this righteousness. And he would be a righteous king named the branch who would rule and reign again over Israel. He would bring salvation Verse 6, "...in his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely." So these people who were receiving Jesus as he rides into town were under Roman rule. And they were longing for this one who had been promised to come and to take back the kingdom, to take his place on David's throne, and to be this righteous king who would bring salvation from Israel's enemies. So they were longing for this one for years, and years, and years. And the prophets continued to give them hope and to speak words of hope to them by showing them signs that they would be able to recognize who this one is when he arrived. And the prophet Zechariah in chapter 9, verse 9, said this. He said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, righteous, And having salvation is He. Does that sound familiar from Jeremiah 23? He's this righteous one who when He comes and He rules, He will reign as king and He will bring salvation. He's humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off and He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. So this one was going to come in a very unique and specific way. He was going to come and be the one that the prophets had, had foretold to the people. He would be recognizable when he showed up in this manner. He was going to be the one who was righteous. He would bring salvation with him. And his reign would be from sea to sea, from the river, to the ends of the earth. In other words, his reign would know no bounds. They would be living securely under this king that they had been promised, they would receive. So when Jesus rides into town, into Jerusalem, on that day that John records in chapter 12 of his gospel, these people recognize Jesus as the one that the prophets had been promising the one that God had been revealing to His people, would show up, and would show up in a very specific way. So as Jesus rides into town on this foal of this donkey, they recognize, this sounds like the one that Zechariah promised us. And they rejoice, they wave palm branches, which is a symbol of His conquering of His enemies. They recognize this is the one that they've been waiting for, so they rejoice. So this step of the pathway of the passion is one of rejoicing as they receive their promised king, the one that they had been longing would show up for years and for years. But it didn't take long after Jesus rides into town for this rejoicing to give way to some unexpected events. Look with me. At John chapter 13, beginning at verse 1 in John chapter 13, John records, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. But also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. So this one that they had just received a while ago as the coming, promised, conquering king of Israel... This one picks up the towel and the basin and washes their feet. And Peter strongly forbid it. He knew that this was not the role of the coming king. He knew that this was the role that's typically reserved for a non-Jewish slave. So when they saw Jesus doing this, they didn't have a category in which to fit it. And Peter tried to resist it. But Jesus persisted and he said, listen, you don't understand this now. But I must wash you, because if I don't, you have no portion with me. This Jesus, the triumphant king, was received rejoicingly by the people of Israel as he rode into town. But very soon after, some unexpected events. So this pathway was one of rejoicing. This pathway was one that's riddled with unexpected events. After he washed their feet, he made this comment and teaching about being clean and he says you're clean if you've been washed but not all of you have been clean because he knew the one who would betray him and before the night is over Judas in fact does betray him this bounty that the Pharisees and the scribes had put out on Jesus head saying hey if you know where he is let us know Judas was that guy who knew where Jesus was and he let them know where he was so the scribes and the Pharisees and a, a band of soldiers go out and they meet Jesus in the garden where He has just done battle in prayer because He knows He is walking this pathway of the Passion on the way to the cross. <coughs> and He prays to the Lord, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from Me. Nevertheless, not My will, but Thy will be done. And He rises up from there and He walks toward Those who would arrest him. And he is taken off and he is brought before the high priest, and the high priest then takes him to Pilate, and Pilate finds no fault in him. Then Pilate says, You, you Jews, you take him and you put him, you know, deal with him according to your law. And they said, No, we can't because our law does not permit us to put him to death. Then Pilate said, It's a custom for me to release someone for you before the Passover. Shall I release Jesus? To which they responded, No, give us Barabbas, crucify this Jesus. So this crowd that had just welcomed him into town now turns their back on him and sends him off to be flogged and to suffer and die death, the excruciating death on a Roman cross. The pathway of the passion from a human perspective was one of rejoicing, one of unexpected events, and one of unmet expectations. These disciples didn't expect this to go this way. It wasn't adding up to them. It just wasn't making sense. Because what they were expecting, they were expecting deliverance from this one, from the Roman oppression. They were expecting deliverance from their political enemies and even after jesus resurrection we see two disciples walking the road to emmaus and they were talking with one another and jesus comes up and they don't recognize him they're still in their grief processing what had just happened and as jesus asks for an explanation they tell him we just really thought this jesus guy was going to be the one to redeem israel We don't understand what just happened. It doesn't make sense to us. So from a human perspective, the the pathway of the passion looked like the road to nowhere. It didn't make any sense. There was initial rejoicing, but these unexpected events led to unmet expectations, and they, they just were doubting everything. They didn't know what to make of it. And our lives are not that different from this, are they? We all know what it's like to face unexpected events in our lives. We all know what it's like to face unmet expectations. Whether it's in relationships, or whether it's in our housing situation, whether it's in our health. We all know what it's like to be met with things that take us by surprise. And as I look out here and look on you, I, I know many of your stories. and. I know the unmet expectations that many of you deal with. I know the unexpected (coughs) events that have taken you by surprise. And you likely know some of the unexpected events that have taken me by surprise. One that comes very clear to me uh, came to the family of Drew and Jen Bryson this last week. Uh, Many of you know Drew and Jen. They're fantastic folks who have a heart for orphans. And they have decided they had done foster care in the past, and they have decided that God is leading them to be involved in foster care with the option for adoption um, now, presently. And they recognized that because of LA County's laws of what it means to bring a couple of extra kids into your family, that that meant they would have to have a home that was larger than their two bedroom apartment that they had been living in. So they began to pray and we began to pray with them that the Lord would provide for them a house. Provide for them something that had like four bedrooms so that they could have room to welcome these foster children into their family and to display the love of Christ to them in a way that they may not have seen before. So we prayed. And it was a week or two later that the Lord answered and they were able to sign um, the lease on a home that had four bedrooms in it. It seemed to be the exact answer to our prayers. And there was much rejoicing. And a week ago yesterday was move-in day. And they are meticulous people who are very prepared, and they had all the boxes packed ahead of time. So they promised that this was going to be a quick move, and they'll get everything over there. And they had an army of folks show up to help them move. And they began to unpack boxes, and Saturday night, Um, They desired, they had clear expectations that they would be rejoicing in their new home and having a restful night on the heels of an exhausting day of moving. Saturday night was not that night for them. It was not, it did not meet their expectations. Um, After church Sunday, I received an email. It only had about three sentences in it. But what I read in those three sentences was horrifying. Horrifying. It was a friend of the Brysons calling the elders to come around and pray for them because when they got there, they discovered that there were other folks' things living in that home rent-free that didn't belong there. They thought they owned the place, but they didn't. And an exterminator needed to be called. And they discovered that there was no hot water. And they discovered that there was a gas leak. This kind of starts to sound like a slum lord's nightmare, doesn't it? So I was afraid of what they had gotten themselves into, and we began to pray. So that first night that they anticipated being restful and rejoicing in their new home was anything but that. Those expectations went unmet. But let me tell you, God had made provision for them because they still had a few days of rent that they had paid on their apartment. So Sunday afternoon, they moved back into the apartment with a few essentials, and their landlord ended up acting like a rock star, he got the exterminators in, he put in a new water heater, turns out he didn't know any of these things were this way, and the gas leak was identified and repaired. And by Thursday night, Wednesday, the Bryson's moved in, Thursday night the elders of Grace Fullerton went there and we prayed with them over this house, and it's a beautiful home. It's fresh, it's got new carpet. It's got four bedrooms, lots of space for the kids. The backyard goes on and on, so there's room for these kids to run. And this, this story is still being written. We don't know how it will go from here. But it just seems like our lives, we know what it's like, right? To, to rejoice in God's provision. And then to have things happen that we didn't foresee. And to wonder, Lord, are you in this or not? We know what it's like to be faced with unexpected events and unmet expectations and the pathway of the passion is exactly what that was like for these disciples as they walked with jesus they rejoiced and yet they didn't understand why he would wash their feet they didn't understand why he would be betrayed and why he would eventually die a criminal's death on a cross to them the pathway of the passion looked like the road to nowhere but god had a plan The kingdom did not appear to be being restored to Israel at that time. But God did have a plan. And when Jesus, this king, rode into town, He did so because God recognized that they had an enemy that was bigger and more grave than the Roman oppressors. They had an enemy of sin and death. And God engineered His plan in order to deal with that. So what is the pathway of the passion like from God's perspective? We're going to step now off of ground level and using the scriptures, we're going to rise above it and look down on the pathway of the passion and seek to discern what it looks like from God's perspective. Acts chapter 2 gives us a, a, a quick and clean answer to that. The context for this is Peter's Pentecost sermon. Okay, the Holy Spirit has come. Jesus has already ascended, the Spirit comes, and what happens is the disciples begin proclaiming the good news of God in languages that they didn't know before, but now they're doing it in languages so that the people that are in Jerusalem from everywhere can hear it. And some people mock and say that they're doing this because they're filled with new wine. They're saying they're drunk, that's why they're talking in this way. Peter stands up to set the record straight. And as he is doing that, he explains in verse 23 what happened. He said, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So the short answer to what is the pathway of the passion like from a divine perspective? It is a necessary thing according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God had a definite plan to deal with the the deepest enemies that the Israelites and all mankind have, and that is the enemy of sin and death. The enemy as characterized by and and, uh, led by the devil. So turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. The author of Hebrews will help us understand what this... Pathway of the Passion is like from a divine perspective. Why why God chose to make this pathway the way He did. And the fact is that the pathway of the Passion is an intentionally engineered path for deliverance from our greatest enemy, the devil. Let's look at Hebrews 2, verse 17. Hebrews 2, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He, meaning Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He had to be made like that because it was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God to do it in this way in order to deal with sin. The pathway of the Passion had always existed in the mind of the eternal God, but it entered into time and space when the Word took on flesh. And Jesus now begins to walk this pathway of the the Passion. Jesus, the Word, the eternal Word, the second person of the Trinity, fully God, takes on human flesh and becomes fully human in addition to being fully God. As he does that, he voluntarily restricts his divinity, and he goes through life fully God and fully man. Fully God, because he needed to deal with sin. Fully man, meaning he knew the fullness of the weight of the temptations that are common to man. That means all the temptations that you face, and all the temptations that I face, whether they have their origin in the flesh, or they have their origin in the world, or they have their origin in the demonic forces, Jesus knew the fullness of the weight of those temptations because He was fully human. He indeed, yes, was fully human. And He knew those weights. And in the only way He could become a merciful High Priest is to feel the fullness of the weight of those temptations, so that when we look to Him with our temptations, He can be merciful to us, recognizing what that weight feels like, what that pain of that temptation feels like. And He can minister to us in ways that are helpful, in ways that are meaningful, in ways that identify with us in the circumstances where we are. And he was a faithful high priest. What that means is he's one that did everything, All he discharged every one of his duties from faith. Meaning he knew the fullness of the weight of those temptations, the weight to seek life and health and existence apart from God, but he never once caved to those temptations. He was a faithful high priest. It was necessary for Him to do that because He needed to be fully man because man in his sin and rebellion had rebelled against God. It was man that, that needed to make things right with God. The wages of sin is death, and God requires death from everyone who sins. And Jesus was fully God, so He was eternal. And when He shed His blood on the cross, Because he had never sinned, it was not required to make payment for his sins, so it became eligible to be applied to my sins, to your sins. And because he was fully God, eternal, he could make that sacrifice once, and it would be effective to cover the sins of all humankind from the beginning of time through the end of this age. As many as who would call on him by faith. As many who would believe on him and trust him. So Jesus steps in on the pathway of the passion as our substitute and takes upon Himself our stripes that we deserve because of our sin. And He takes upon Himself, stands in our place as our substitute, and He purchases with His own blood complete satisfaction of God's righteous wrath against sin. So this pathway of the passion was one that required Jesus to die. It was intentionally engineered by God to require Jesus to die. Hebrews 2.14 says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. 1 John 3.8 says this, that the reason that the Son of Man appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So God engineered a plan, this pathway of the passion, to intentionally use death as the means by which he would destroy the one who held the power of death, that is, the devil. So when the devil thought that he had worked out his plan by entering into Judas and betraying Jesus into the hands of evil men, and then ultimately nailing him to the cross, looking like he was finally, once and for all, undoing all that Jesus had done by putting him to death, God used that, flipped the momentum, and actually Jesus' death was not the end of Jesus, but it was the end of the devil himself. God used the pathway of the passion to free us from the devil. Colossians 2.14, Paul says it this way. I'll begin reading at 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So God takes the momentum of the enemy as he seeks to destroy Jesus, flips it on himself where that momentum ends up destroying the enemy instead of Jesus. The pathway of the passion is engineered and meticulously mapped out death blow to the devil. Listen to Charles Spurgeon as he speaks about this. He says, death was the devil's chief entrenchment. "'Christ bearded the lion in his den "'and fought him in his own territory. "'And when he took death from him "'and dismantled that once impregnable fortress, "'he took away from him not only that, "'but every other advantage that he had had over the saint. "'And now Satan is a conquered foe, "'not only in the hour of death, "'but in every other hour and in every other place. "'He is an enemy, both cruel and mighty.' But he is a foe who quakes and quails when a Christian gets into the lists with him, for he knows that though the fight may waver for a little while in the scale, the balance of victory must fall on the side of the saint because Christ, by his death, destroyed the devil's power. Christ, by his death, destroyed the the devil's power the devil is the one who held the power of death according to Hebrews 2 so this pathway of the passion is an intentionally engineered plan of god according to the will of god to destroy the devil Hebrews 2:15 god wasn't satisfied merely to destroy the devil he engineered this plan to free the captives Verse fifteen, and to deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. Through fear of death, so he destroyed the one who held the power of death, which is the devil, and he freed the captives who were being held captive by the fear of death. How many of you feared death? When I first thought about it, I thought, "I don't fear death. I'm in Christ." I know that death is the portal through which I must pass in order to enter in the fullness of my salvation. Unless Jesus comes back first, then He would spare us from that. But death is a necessary end to life in this mortal body, on this earth. And it's the the ushering in of the Christian into the fullness of the presence of the Lord, the fullness of the salvation that was purchased for Him by shedding His blood on the cross. So in my head, I don't fear death. But when I look at my life, I live my life running from the fear of death. (coughs) Those of you who know me well know me to be a people pleaser. And you know me to be a workaholic. So when I do things to appear good in your eyes to win your approval because I fear you rather than fearing God, I do so. Because to lose your approval, to lose face in your eyes, feels like death to me. I work hard in order to gain some sense of significance in this world. And when I do that, I do that out of an identity of what I do, not an identity of who I am in Christ. So I am seeking life apart from God. by building up these idols that I design according to my likeness, according to my plan, to find life apart from God. And when I do that, I do that ultimately out of a fear of death. But the good news is, is that the pathway of the passion, God is intentionally engineered so that not only the devil would be defeated, but that you and I could be freed from living a life that ultimately is running from the fear of death. We can enter into the fullness of life that Christ holds out for us by faith in His name, and we can actually live lives of holiness and righteousness. Our motivation can be pure for what we say and for what we do because we rest firmly in the identity that is ours in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are a firstborn child Son, according to Galatians, a firstborn adopted son of the king. That is a secure position. You don't have to do anything to earn God's favor. Everything that's necessary to have God's favor rest on you has been done for you by Jesus. That's the good news of the gospel. We serve a God who has done it all. All we do is receive, we rest, we trust. And we rise up with hearts of gratitude and we steward our lives according to His plans, according to His purposes. Which brings us to the point where I want you to think about your life. You all know unexpected events. You all know unmet expectations. Some of you were confronted by them this morning on your way here. Some of you are struggling with health issues and all the insecurity that comes with that. Some of you are struggling with identity issues. You're struggling with whether or not God actually loves you. Some of you are struggling with employment. You're either unemployed or underemployed, or the job that you work at you don't love, or the people that you work with you have conflict with. There's opposition, there's disappointment, there's unmet expectations in that. Some of you are dealing with financial struggles. You know what you're dealing with. You know what it is that's right here, that just like Israel saw the Romans as their ultimate enemy because they were right in their face, you know what enemy it is that you are facing that's right in front of your face. And the offer is this. From God's perspective, whatever you're facing has been intentionally engineered by Him for you. Listen to Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The NIV would translate that, the race that is marked out for you. That's a little more personal. Marked out for you, or set before us. The fact is, we are all walking our own pathway. We are all running a race that is marked out for us according to God. And we know what it's like to rejoice. And we know what it's like to suffer unexpected circumstances and unmet expectations, but the pathway of the passion is that Jesus walked in humble obedience and He destroyed the devil and He freed you from the fear of death." God is at work in those circumstances. As difficult and as painful as it is for you, God is with you in those circumstances. And how do we run with endurance this race in which He has marked out for us? Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We can walk the path that is marked out for us in faith because Jesus faithfully walked the path that was marked out for Him that led to the cross. His death has secured for us life. So turning back to Hebrews 2, how shall we respond to this news? Hebrews 2.18 says this, For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. So as you walk your pathway and you come face to face with those familiar temptations or maybe new temptations, you can go to your merciful, faithful high priest because he has been tempted. And he's able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 4 verse 14 helps us understand how to respond in this way. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So as we meditate on this pathway of the passion, this intentionally engineered path that God has mapped out for Jesus in order to purchase our salvation, to free us from the power of the devil, and to free us from the fear of death. Let's marvel at this greatness of this salvation. Let's worship the One who engineered it. And let's find life in His name and hope to meet the challenges of our path as we walk our path with faith, to respond to those circumstances with faith. Because the one who purchased our salvation is a merciful and a faithful high priest. And He's he's able to offer you grace and help in your hour of need. So what are you facing today? What are your unexpected circumstances? What are your unmet expectations? Filter those through this. They're part of a race that God has marked out for you. His favor rests upon you if you are in Christ. If it's hard, it does not mean that He doesn't love you. His grace is sufficient for you and for me to meet you in the pain, to meet you in those circumstances, and to allow you to respond with faith, to enter into the fullness of the life that He has purchased for you because He was not willing to withhold anything in order to purchase you His salvation. He gave you His precious Son, it cost Him everything. So we can follow Him and lean into Him and find in Him the grace and the mercy and the help to help us in our time of need. Let's pray and let's spend some time in silence responding to this One who engineered this pathway of the Passion. Father, help us, help us to comprehend the magnitude of the love that you displayed by putting Jesus, the one who knew no sin, on the cross to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Help us to comprehend that and to love it and for that to fuel worship in us. Lord, if there's some among us today that haven't trusted You as Savior, I pray that You, by Your Spirit, would draw them and they would make that transaction with You today. They would receive You as Lord and Christ and would find their freedom from the devil, freedom from the fear of death, and the abundant life that You have promised all those who would trust You by faith. Lord, for those who are in Christ and faced with difficult circumstances, I pray that you would meet them right there in the midst of that temptation, that you would provide help and hope. You would be their strength. You would fuel their faithfulness, and that you would be worshipped and glorified as you do. So, Lord, we humble ourselves under your mighty hand. We present ourselves to you be pleased to give us ears to hear now as you continue to minister to us in the silence through the ministry of your Spirit. Please empower us to respond to these truths about you with faith. We ask these blessings now in Jesus' name. The one who purchased our salvation. We love you. We praise you. Amen.